Welcome, I'm Father Mitch Packwell, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of the tradition that goes back to the apostles. And in this series, we're especially taking a look at how we use sacred scripture in our prayer. Now, of course, we'd love to have you be part of the show, and you can do that in a number of ways, like these nice folks have done. You can come here to be part of our studio audience, or you can call during the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you want to offer a question or a comment, you can call from North America, one 800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call, but the number is country code 1, area code 205 271 you can also send us your questions by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Today, we're going to continue looking at the parables that Jesus taught while he was in Jerusalem and parables that clearly show how he deals with the good and the wicked people in the world, and how people from church leaders, such as the bishops, priests, and other clergy, as well as lay leaders, should never, ever think that somehow or other they are above receiving the judgment of God for their actions, whether they're good or they're bad. All of us will be judged for our actions. Now, we are going through my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. And you can still get that over at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com. And there it is item number 81098. 81098. Now, we are still going through the chapter that I entitled there, The Church Will Always Include Sinners. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can take a look at Matthew 25. We're going to begin with verses 1 to 13 of Matthew 25. This is the famous parable of the wise and foolish virgins and how the wise and the fools exist in the church. Now, the first thing that we see in this passage is how our Lord is trying to prepare all of us to be prepared, to be always be ready for Him in His second coming at the end of the world. And even if it's not His second coming, we also have to prepare for the, you know, the death that each one of us will experience at some point 
if that comes before Christ returns. And the basic theme of these parables goes back to Matthew 24, verses 40 to 44, where it says, Then two men will be in the field. One is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the meal, at the mill. One is taken and the other is left. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is, in fact, a mercy. Uh, yesterday, uh, I was invited by one of our co-workers here to go see a really powerful, powerful movie called Nefarious. It's, uh, uh, and it's about a demon-possessed man who is on death row give you that much of the story. But I mention that here now because the people on death row are among the few in the world who know the time and the hour of their death. Very few people know when they're going to die. People on death row do. And it's good to remember that that is a punishment it's not a blessing to know the day you're going to die because in addition to the pain of death, you add dread. So we don't know, and that's a mercy. But we always have to be ready, and that's what the parables that we're talking about are concerned with. So let's take a look at that. First of all, we'll begin with Matthew 25. Uh, begin with verse uh, 1 through 4. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be compared to ten maidens who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So this is the setting. There's a wedding feast. And the, by the way, the image of the wedding feast is especially favored by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. There are a number of references to the bride and the wedding. And the idea of a wedding is very much part of the idea of heaven. Heaven itself is compared to a wedding, as you see in Revelation chapter 19 and in chapter 21 of Revelation. So that's a good thing to keep in mind. And wedding feasts are great celebrations. This is a very important thing. But notice that our Lord explained some of, uh, well, some of the Five maidens were foolish and some were wise. And again, we should think about this in relationship to our Lord's 
requests that we be wise. He wants wisdom. Again, just as we saw in the previous week, it's a practical wisdom of how to live life. In Greek, phronimos, phronimos. Not sophos, the word for theoretical wisdom, but phronimos. And this is the same term that appears in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, when our Lord said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wisdom by itself, practical wisdom, is not virtue alone. It needs other virtues like uh, innocence. You have to be wise and good. There's some people who have a lot of practical wisdom about how to be bad. A lot of criminals are very accomplished and sometimes as we see in the various Oceans movie, Ocean Eleven and all of them, um, that you can see that they are clever in being bad. That's not what our Lord wants, but it's rather he wants us to be wise and also good. And in this parable that we're discussing in Matthew 25, what separates the fools from the wise was the practical wisdom of bringing extra oil, bringing the uh, olive oil. You know, usually they would press olives uh, five, six, even seven times. And the last pressings of the oil from an olive, that is pretty dark and it's not good to eat. They use it for their oil lamps. That was the cheap oil for oil lamps, and that's how they lit their homes. And this is a key problem. Now, their folly comes into play when the bridegroom arrives. So we see in Matthew 25, verses 5 through 9, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those maidens rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, Perhaps there will not be enough for us and for you. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So, this is the consequence. Now, uh, the practical wisdom of the five wise virgins is that they brought extra oil because you don't know when the bridegroom is going to arrive. And in the ancient world, that was something that happened. Sometimes when the groom would go to get his bride and bring her from her father's house to his own house for the celebration. 
sometimes there was ongoing negotiation. Oh, no, wait a minute. The dowry we said was going to include this and this. And the bridal price was going to include this, this, and this. And your gifts to her. And hey, what, we're, and they would negotiate back and forth. Okay. And then finally, when they, everybody was happy with the negotiations, then the bridegroom would bring his bride. Um, I remember once being uh, stopped uh, in the main street of Nazareth by such a wedding. The bridegroom was being led to his house on a horse, and you know everybody in the street was celebrating, throwing candy and all sorts of things because such a big celebration. But these kind of delays do still take place in Middle Eastern weddings. And the wise virgins can't really give. Some people will say, well, why don't they just share some of it? No, they have to have their lamps lit throughout the party. You can't have everybody's lamp go out before the party is over. That's what is being con the concern. So it would not be practical wisdom to give half of this to you and I'll keep half and then everybody's lamp goes out. That's not wise. So these are looking at a greater wisdom. And the fools go out to get the oil and while they're gone, the door is shut. And when they do come back, we see in verses 10 through 12, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went into the wedding feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other maidens came back also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, this is something that is very problematic. That the bridegroom prohibits the fools from entering into the wedding feast. And this concern that I don't know you goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, it concludes in Matthew chapter 7. And in verse 22, right toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. This criterion for the wise to be ones who are known by Jesus is absolutely essential. He doesn't just want people who do things. So he wants that. We'll see in a few minutes. But it's not enough just to do things. You also have to let Jesus know you. Now, on one hand, you can say, well, he's God, so he knows everything. Yes, he does. But there is another kind of knowledge 
by which we freely give ourselves. We open up our motives, our inner self to God, and we invite him in. This is a basic choice everybody has to make. And the fools did not. That would be the essence of their folly. On the practical level, yeah, they didn't have the oil. But on the spiritual level, they didn't let Jesus know them. And this is something that our Lord truly wants. And this is why he concludes this whole parable in verse 13 and says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You don't know when our Lord is coming to call you to account. And, you know, next to the moment of your conception, the moment of your conception is the most important moment of your life because that is the moment when you begin to exist. God creates your soul in your mother's womb at that moment of conception. And no other moment is more important because from that point on, you will live for all eternity. But the second most important moment of life is the moment of death. That's the moment when you stand before the Lord and everything in your life that you've done and all that you've let Jesus know about you, that is presented to him. So this is why we have to be wise in always being ready to meet Jesus face to face and present ourselves to him in all of its truth and as it is. We're going to take a break. We'll come back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. We'll get to your questions and comments, too. Welcome back. We're going to deal with a second parable here, and that is in Matthew 25, still in 25, but we're going to go from verses 14 to 30. This is the parable of the three servants who were given talents by their master. And again, our Lord is still teaching about the end of the world in these parables. And we see there, we'll start off with Matthew 25, verses 14 to 15, sort of the setting. It says, For it will be as when a man going on a journey called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two 
and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So this obviously is a parable that assumes our Lord's ascension into heaven. That's his going on a journey. That, that would be uh, in the background here. And the focus here throughout this whole parable is going to be on the activity and fidelity of the, each of the three servants. So that's, that's the first part of it. And, you know, one of the things about the master that's well worth noting is that he knows his servants. He knows their abilities. He knows which ones can do more and which ones can do less. And, you know, this is uh, something that uh, folks in the right the moment right now in our culture, sometimes they want to think that everybody is equal in ability. That's not true. It's just not. You know, some, some people will have abilities in certain areas and not in others. I've done okay with certain academic subjects but not in others. I'm terrible at you know, mathematics and I'm not at all good in mechanics. My, my brother is a mechanical genius, as was my dad. I didn't get any of that. And all of us have abilities in different areas and some people just don't have a whole lot of talents, but then there are other gifts that are inside of them. And it's important to recognize that different people have different kinds of talents and some have more talent and some have less. It doesn't mean that they have less dignity because they don't have as much talent, but it just means they don't have as much talent. And that is part of the mosaic of the human race. The hu human race is not all of the same size tile or the same color. We have this great variety within the human race. And that's a, a very cool thing and it makes for a lot of interest. And in that context, it's also important to note that people with strong abilities in some area should never look down on the, those who have lesser abilities because everybody is interdependent. We need each other in so many ways. And so you, there's no room for looking down on anybody, but there is room to recognize those differences and work with the reality, not play pretend games. So this is a, a very important thing. You recognize that. And one of the things that goes with it is the master is going to judge each person according to their abilities. He's not going to judge uh, people. I, I hope our Lord would not judge me on how good a mechanic I am. 
I'd be doomed. But whether I used the talents I did get as my brother uses the talents he got, that will be the judgment. And that's very important to keep in mind. Now, um, one of the other things, too, to keep in mind, when he says that he gives them the different talents, a talent was a denomination of money. It was a weight of money. And a talent was 6,000 denarii. That would be uh, another way to weigh, especially with the Syrian talent, it was 65 pounds of gold. 65 pounds of gold. Some of the talents from different countries were a little bit less. Some were 60 pounds, some were 70 pounds, but the Syrian talent was 65 pounds. That's a lot. And you can see that the master has entrusted even the third servant with one talent with an awful lot of treasure. That's a lot of money to have 65 pounds of gold. Not ounces, pounds. And we, we sell gold now, I think it's about, about $2,000 uh, an ounce. And so um, start doing your math. You're coming up with some big time money here. So that's, that's a good thing. It'd be about $300,000 per talent. It's not a bad amount. And we have some Canadians here. That's U.S. dollars. <laughs> I don't know the, the exchange rate to Canadian dollars. <laughs> and so, uh, so here, here we have. Now, in this case, we have to take a look at how they came back because this is a very important part for each one, that the uh, servants came back with, well, when the master, master came back from his uh, journey, you see that uh, he says to the first uh, servant, um, you know, that this, uh, he would receive the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents uh, more. So also, he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So that's how this went. The master, when he returns, is going to judge them for what they did with the talents he gave them. Now, you can see how in later English, the word talent has then been taken up to use the abilities and gifts each person has in other areas. So we use it now to refer to uh, your ability to perform in public as a, uh, America has talent is not about getting 65 pounds of gold each. That's what we pay in taxes. But, <laughs> but, the, but it's more of uh, today talent is used about one's abilities. And it's, that's not a bad use of the word talent as an image for the gifts God has given us. So it says in verse 19, 
Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So here the guy had a million and a half dollars given to him, and he increased it by a million and a half. That's a good return. And then he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. So he got $600,000 worth of gold. Uh, and he gave another 600000 back in addition. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But the real problem comes in, and this gets to the point, with the man who had the one talent. Who, the one who had the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not uh, winnow. And I was afraid, and I wouldn't hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now, this servant didn't lose it, did he? He didn't spend it on himself. But the master is not happy for another reason. His master answered him and said, You wicked and slothful servant, that this servant, who didn't spend it on himself or steal or anything, just hid it. In his case, the wickedness comes from being lazy. That's what sloth means, laziness. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have not winnowed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So at least you get some interest off of this by letting other people. You didn't even do that. Now there's also another thing here. Not only is he lazy, he is going for the safety. He is not taking the risk. And this is a key part of life, is it not? I'm taking risk in life is very important. And this is something that the master is very concerned with. So uh, our Lord draws the conclusion from that. Uh, if you take a look first, uh, well, well, just remember what Again, we already read in Matthew 24, the chapter earlier than this, verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The servant didn't know. And he's just in his fear, hides the talent. And the master is very angry, says to him in verse 28 and 29, 
So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So, A, the gift that he was given, he will lose. God does not give us our gifts just to sit there. And, you know, those people who have uh, gifts of their intellect to do academic work and are lazy in school, they will be called to account. Those who have gifts to be able to be in the trades and do not do so will be called to account. Those who are so afraid to start a family and so they just don't, they will be called to account. This is what our Lord calls us to. It's courage and taking risks. That's part of what we're supposed to do. And um, after that, the Lord goes on to say about the man, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. Their men will weep and gnash their teeth. This is the faith that it's not just, well, you didn't, you know, get a big prize. You have to go back home with a year's supply of rice or something, you know. No, 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 no. It's not that kind of a contest. You'd be lucky to get a year's worth of rice or uh, Instead, you're in the outer darkness with wailing and gnashing of teeth. Our Lord often warns about that wailing and gnashing of teeth. And it's not only the loss of the talent, but it's punishment. This is something that is a, a very important element of the, um, you know, the, the way that we'll, we'll be judged. And you know, are we using the gifts God gives us? This is key. Now, we'll stop there. And next week, we'll take a look at the parable of the sheep and the goats and what we do to the least of our brethren. But we'll stop there and start taking a look at some of your questions. Let's start off, first of all, with Kathy. Kathy, where are you calling from? Oh, hello. Hi, Kathy. Oh, hello, Father Mitch. Thank you for taking my call. Sure, where are you from? Um, I'm from Westminster, Maryland. Good to have you. Good to have you. What can we do Thank for you? you. A two-parter. Um, uh, do I understand correctly the Jewish of the old will be judged by Moses or the laws of Moses because of Jesus not having been born and died for us as of yet at that time? And do the Jews, our Jewish brothers and sisters of today need to come to know Jesus as our Savior to be saved? Yeah, here, a couple things. You know, when we're talking of, of certainly, uh, they, the, the, the people who came before Christ, you know, and many who, and those who don't know about Christ, will not be judged exactly the way Christians will. 
uh, they'll, they'll be judged by the law of Moses. You're right. And this is itself a very uh, stringent kind of judgment. The, the law of Moses does not allow for, you know, uh, sloppy morals by any means. It's, you know, and it's well thought out. You know, the, the, over the centuries, rabbis have and still continue to wrestle with the moral implications of the law of Moses with great care and precision. So this is going to be the norm um, that, that they have. And St. Paul mentions that as well. Now, in terms of you know, our faith, is that ultimately everyone in the world will be judged by Christ. But he doesn't have simply his objective norm. He also knows the heart and the ability of each person. That's part of the point of this parable. He also knows what is on the conscience of every person. And he's going to judge in a way far more righteously than you and I can think about. Because we cannot know the inner thoughts of other people. We don't know their inner motives. He does. And he will judge them by then, judge us the same way. And so this is something that we leave in his hands. And for our own sake, we focus especially on the way that he will judge each of us. The better we know the law of Christ, the Ten Commandments, as well as the Sermon on the Mount and the other teachings of Christ and the apostles, the better off we'll be. I, I, I've had to rebuke more than one person for saying, well, I don't want to read the Bible. That way I won't know what I have to do. <laughs> you know, one of the criteria may end up being, why didn't you read the Bible when it was made available to you? Do you, th do you think you're going to get away with anything with God? You can get away with stuff in, you know, U.S. courts. You know, civil courts and criminal courtrooms and plea bargain, all this. It's not that way with Christ. It's going to be an absolutely true and thorough judgment. That's why our Lord keeps on saying, always be ready. Okay, so we'll focus on getting the criteria for ourselves and our Lord will judge those of other faiths. That's for sure, in the best way possible. We have a question from our studio audience. Yes, Father Mitch. Uh, I would like to know if, uh, metaphorically speaking, if Christ was, uh, our Lord was talking about when the, the wise virgins mm -hmm. had the extra oil and the ones who didn't, mm -hmm. uh, was he referring to the state of our soul uh, being centered in the sacraments, mm -hmm. uh, confession, communion, uh, uh, and uh, receiving, you know, Holy Communion, sure. Sure. and uh, living a life uh, in, in 
you know, proclaiming the gospel to those we know in our life. Sure. And, uh, you know, one of the things about any one of the parables is that you have a variety of ways to approach the images. When you use an image like the oil and the lamp, then you can see a number of elements as you reflect on your life. You can see that, yeah, you know, on one hand, the lamps would be like uh, the sacraments and the oil like the grace of the Holy Spirit. You know, there are a number of elements that, and you can do that in a number of different ways. So that, and that's what we're supposed to do is analyze this and see how that applies to various aspects of my life. But also, so long as it always goes back to the issue, am I a fool or do I have wisdom? And, you know, a lot of times uh, we have people making a good living off of being fools uh, in public. You know, they, uh, I remember... Um, hearing how the last, famous last words of a Texas redneck, hold my beer and watch this. That's foolish. <laughs> That's foolish. You know, you don't want to go that route. Uh, you have to look for wisdom and using all the gifts God gives you. That would be key. Does that help? Yes, sir. All right. Well, we'll take a little break. We'll come back with more questions from our studio audience, your phone calls and uh, emails. So please stay with us. First of all, I'd like to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. It's going to be a special program with a lot of very special guests because we are making a tribute to Mother Angelica in honor of her 100th birthday, which will be Thursday. We'll also take your phone calls as well and give you a chance to share your thoughts on Mother Angelica, who died seven years ago on Easter Sunday. Her 100th birthday would have been this Thursday, April 20th, and we'd like to have you help, uh, help us celebrate her memory. There's a lot of good ones. You need a lot of good ones. So please join us for that show. Now we're going to go to some more questions. Sir, where are you from? Aurelia, Ontario, Canada. Good to have you here. Welcome. Welcome to the United States. Thank you. And I really don't know the exchange rate for talents to Canadian dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> so what can we do for you? Well, I was just wondering. Uh, it says two women were in a field and one was taken away and one was left. Mm -hmm. I was never sure if it was good to be taken away or to be left. 
Okay. Being uh, left is not good. That was the bad part. <laughs> so, and, and the idea, and again, it was two men taken from a field, two women grinding grain. And, you know, this gets at the issue of the judgment that we don't know um, when it's going to happen and you don't know where you're going to be. So you always be ready. And the one left behind, that's not good. Okay. Thank okay. you, Father. Sure. Yes, sir, where are you from? Uh, St. Augustine, Florida. Good to have you here. Welcome, Thank welcome. You. I had a quick question. Uh, do most people go to heaven or hell? Yeah. This is something that we don't know a precise answer. Um, we see our Lord says, for instance, in Matthew 22, that many are called but few are chosen. And we also see him say in the Sermon on the Mount that the way to heaven, as he says, the way to life is narrow, but the way to destruction is wide and many are on it. And we, again, we don't know how many, in the, and for the most part, it's not our business who doesn't go to heaven. Uh, our business is to get there ourselves. But uh, I, I was struck uh, yesterday as I watched this movie of how the demon was saying, we are getting a large number of people in this time. Many people are going away from the faith. Many people are living for themselves not for God and not for their neighbors. Many people are harming others. We, when we see these upticks in crime, politicians sometimes say that this is an opportunity. Either if I show sympathy to the perpetrators of the crime, I'll get more votes. If I criticize the perpetrators of the crime, I'll get more votes from other people. I don't look at it that way. I look at the increase of crime, the increase of drug use, etc., as these people are setting themselves up for the judgment in a very bad way. If you sell fentanyl and kill, like we see, 100,000 people a year, you make that available. You are a tool of Satan. You know, that, that's just evil. No way around it. And so many, and you go on and on with the other crimes that people are trying to get away with. Shooting randomly. We just had a shooting here in the Birmingham area. I actually heard the gunfire going off. I, it was at a di distance from where I was. I could hear it. And people were just shooting innocent folks or even the guilty. You can't do that. You know, the, and it's become so much part of things. This is setting up lots of people for condemnation. They're making themselves tools of the enemy, uh, of God, and it's a, it's a big problem. So what we have to focus on 
is how do I keep myself? As our Lord said, the way that is straight and narrow. It's not easier to get to heaven. Uh, easier way is to hell, according to him. And one, one minister, a Lutheran minister, had put it very well. When he read that passage uh, in Matthew 22, many are called and few are chosen. He said, many are cold and a few are frozen. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think he's right. Sir. Hello, Father. I'm from Rio Rico, Arizona, which is right next to Nogales. I can see Mexico from my front sure, yard. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so what can we do for you this Monday? Along the day? same question, uh, I remember somewhere in the Bible it says, until you're baptized, you're not a child of God, suggesting mm -hmm. that if you're not baptized, you're not going to heaven. Mm -hmm. And I know some really good people that are living good Christian lives, but they don't believe in baptism. Right. So how much should I be begging them to, to go down and get baptized? Yeah, or can they make yeah, it otherwise? Yeah. Well, first of all, there are two questions here. You know, one, have the reasons clear in your mind so you can explain in a way that they can get. Bring, as we like to say here in Alabama, bring the hay down so the goats can get it about why baptism now saves you. That's what the Bible says. Baptism now saves you. Now, at the same time, that baptism is the normal way of adoption by God. That's what baptism is about, being adopted as a child of God. We are not born children of God. We're born rebels. And we have to get accepted into the family. And that's what baptism is about. It's about the washing away of sin, original sin, and for adults, actual sin. It's about union with Christ, and with the, blessed, with the whole Blessed Trinity. There's so much. And study baptism and, you know, give good reasons. But then also be aware that our Lord will judge. And in fact, next week, we'll talk more about some of those, the, the ways that he judges people who don't know him, but he'll judge them by what they do to the least of their brethren. Yeah, so that'd be good. And then let's see here. I have an email from Sandra uh, who uh, writes, Father Mitch, my sister and I, and I enjoyed watching the Easter programs that appeared on EWTN. We are in a dispute about Mary Magdalene. Was she a prostitute that Jesus saved and then became one of the women who followed Jesus? Or was she just a devoted follower of Jesus? Um, what we know about her is that seven demons were cast out from her. We don't know that she's a prostitute. And I tend to, to really think not. The reason that she's associated with it is that right before introducing Mary Magdalene in the, the gospel, there is a prostitute that goes to Jesus and washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And some people have put this, you know, side by side, you know, and said, oh, it's the same lady. Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. Could be, but I don't think so. Um, but we'll find out when we meet them both. God willing, we do. Uh, Got to go to heaven to meet those two. 
Also, was she related to Martha and Lazarus? We are confused about her and her relationship with Jesus. Could you clarify who she was? Uh, I don't think at all. I, I'd be very sure she is not the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Martha and Lazarus and Mary lived in Bethany. Bethany is just a mile or so outside Jerusalem. It's an easy walk, except for now, because the, uh, the Israeli government put a wall. But uh, if it weren't a wall, it's a very easy walk to go to Bethany. Magdala, as in Mary Magdalene, Magdala is a town on the Sea of Galilee, 70 miles plus away. So I don't think that's the same person. You know, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived right near Jerusalem, and Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, lived way up in the north. So that's, that's it. And by the way, if you get a chance to go to Israel, they are excavating Magdala and finding a lot of very interesting things. Uh, the, uh, you know, the land's been bought by the church, and very good excavations are going on there. But one thing we cannot do is any excavation now because we've run out of time. So thank you all for being with us. And may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May he lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we are able to bring this program and all of our other programs on the specials that we're doing about Mother Angelica, we can bring those to you only because the network is brought to you by you. As Mother had set it up, our Lord inspired her, that you should keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and I'll add the cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you. God bless. Mm -hmm.